All right, Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Paul continues, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thus far the reading of God's word. Morning. Told you I'd start on time. I was a little late. Okay. For those who don't know, um, I have been dubbed as living on Carl time, um, which is not Sutton time. <laughs> so I'll just leave it with that. All right, so here we have the, the last passage here in Galatians chapter 2. And with this passage, Paul now is concluding his sort of defense of his ministry, his defense of his message, and he's going to start going on then in chapter 3. He's going to move on to more meaty doctrine, how this doctrine of justification by faith uh, without works of the law, apart from works of the law, uh, will play itself out. He kind of goes into a little bit of like a biblical theological journey through the Old Testament to show how this was always the case. But in, in chapters 1 and 2, the last half of chapter 1 going into chapter 2, Paul really spends a lot of time defending himself. Uh, defending himself against those who are troublers, as he says here, uh, that who doubted his apostleship, who doubted his message, because it differed from what you saw that, at least what some people thought, Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem taught. So Paul talks about his conversion. He talks about how he originally met Peter early on in his, in his um, ministry life, and then how he goes again later and has a meeting with him. And in that meeting, we find that, of course, Paul says... Peter added nothing to my gospel. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. We are preaching the same message. The only thing they recognize is that they have a specific ministry to the Jewish people, and Paul has a specific ministry to the Gentile people. So he is building a case here that the gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that the people in Jerusalem preach, and it's a gospel of faith alone. You are justified, made righteous, declared righteous by faith alone not by works of the law. And what you have here, you have a group of people, these, they're called the circumcision party, which was kind of a funny name, but the circumcision party, they're the Judaizers, however you want to refer to them, they are coming in and they are saying that in order to be justified by God, you have to have works of the law in addition to your faith. You have to add to faith. And Paul will say, as we saw early on in chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, he says, if you preach any gospel other than the one that you receive, that's a false gospel and you should be accursed. For there is no other gospel. They're just distortions and, and perversions of the gospel. So last time uh, we looked at verses 11 through 16 where Paul has an encounter with Peter in which 
Peter was there in Antioch with him, and, and they were fellowshipping with the people at Antioch. And we talked a little bit about Antioch. How it's, it was kind of like a unique church in that day. It, was, it had a Jewish population, but also had a heavy Gentile population. It was a church that sent out missionary work. Uh, it was a church in Antioch. It was there that they were first, the people were there first called Christians. And um, Peter is fellowshipping with Gentiles. That is until people came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it was at that point then that Peter all of a sudden remembered, hey, wait a second, I'm Jewish. I need to sort of fellowship now. I have to, I have to distance myself from the Gentiles because these, these Judaizers are here and they're, they're kind of looking daggers at me. They're giving me the stink eye and all that. And then Peter or Paul says, no, 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 no. So I confronted him to his face. It's like, look, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. Okay? He doesn't say, Peter, you are a false Christian. He says, Peter, you're not living in line with your profession. You're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. You need to be brought back to remembrance that you were not saved by works of the law. In fact, in verse 14, he says there, it's like, how, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like Jews, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, we Jews are not Jewish enough. <laughs> And then you want to force that onto the Gentiles to try to be Jewish. It's like, they're going to fail just as bad and miserably as we are. And he goes on, and we get that great verse 16 there. He says, we know. So now 15 and 16 are sort of, in a sense, summarizing this conversation. He's not directly quoting himself, but he's still kind of summarizing this conversation that he has with Peter. And he's like, look, we know. Peter, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. It's like, this is something we know. This is something we've come to an awareness of. And in that verse 16, he mentions justified not by works of the law, but by faith three times. Just in case you were wondering if... It's like, if you didn't get it the first time, if you didn't get it the second time, you're getting it the third time. We are not justified by works of the law. No one will be justified by works of the law. And the point Paul is making is like, you cannot add works of the law to the finished work of Christ. If you do, you distort and pervert the gospel, and you empty the gospel of all of its saving power, because how much of the works of the law do you have to do? And that's what we're going to find out today. How much of the works of the law do you have to do? Now, as we look into this passage this morning, we are going to hit a concept. I, I've, we've talked about this before, but not really at any great length. And that concept is union with Christ, because verse 20 is one of the classic texts, if you will, that talks about our union with Christ, where Paul there says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, when Christ was crucified, in some sense, I was there too. And in some sense, y'all were there too. So Paul's going to talk about this union with Christ. But I want to talk just a little bit about union with Christ. Um, We talked a little bit about this in the men's breakfast yesterday as a side note. But um, turn to John 15, if you will. I'll try not to take too much time with this, but... John chapter 15, and we're going to get there eventually when we get there in our study through John's gospel. We're almost there, I would say, probably two or three messages, and then we'll be there. So this is like a foretaste, so you can get a little, get a little 
nibble of it here, so then when we preach on it, you're going to be, yeah, I remember what you just said. Or like, oh no, I never heard this before. And then I'll look at your memories. <laughs> John chapter 15. So again, this is in the context of the upper room discourse where uh, Jesus is still, uh, it's a long discourse, and it's only in John's gospel, but he's talking to his disciples, and uh, minus Judas, who had been uh, told to leave early on. And he says to him, look, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full or complete. So here, Jesus uses an illustration of a vine and its branches. And he says he's the true vine. Uh, there are some passages in the Old Testament that refer to Israel as a vine. But Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. And if you are connected to me, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you do not abide in me, if you do not bear fruit, then that branch is a dead branch. It is severed from the vine and is gathered together with the other dead branches and burned. But the, uh, the, vine, the, the branch that does bear fruit, then the Father, we're told here, prunes so that it can bear more fruit. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is where Jesus says, look, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are not abiding in me, you will not bear fruit. And that's that talks about that union with Christ. We need to be connected to Christ. We need to be vitally connected to the true vine in order to bear fruit. And that connection comes, of course, through faith by the Holy Spirit. But here Jesus talks about the connection, the vital connection that believers have with him in union and communion with Christ. Another one is in Acts chapter 9, and this is more of the context. We looked at it yesterday with the men. Um, in Acts chapter 9, you see uh, Paul's conversion. He's on the road to Damascus. And in, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, we see here, but Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on, the way, on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around them. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Now, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? And then when Saul says, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Again, Jesus is so identified with his people that he, when, when the church is being persecuted, you are persecuting Jesus Christ himself, that union with Christ. Uh, we're going to look at Galatians 15 through 20. Where we're, where we're, that's the passage we're going to look at today, so we'll skip that one until we you know, look at these others. But then in Colossians 3, it's another passage that talks about this union. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And we looked at, we talked about this briefly during the annual meeting. Uh, this is sort of like my theme passage for the year. But in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul has been talking and writing about the surpassing supremacy of Jesus Christ, how he's far superior to earthly philosophies and, and other worldly religions, and, and that he is sufficient, that he is enough. So then when he's done talking about that, then he goes into how to apply these truths, and he starts off in chapter 3 by saying then, if then you have been raised with Christ. Again, there's that language of union with Christ. Christ was raised from the dead, and if you have been raised with him, connected to the vine by faith, by, uh, through faith by the Holy Spirit, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ, union with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This, again, this connection, this union between Christ and his church, Christ and his people. A vital connection, a spiritual, some people call it the mystical union. It sound, when I say, hear that, I sound, that sounds kind of like New Agey. Uh, but it is, a, it is a spiritual union between the believer and Christ. Uh, just a couple of quotes. Uh, John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, uh, has a whole chapter on union with Christ. And it's interesting the way Murray <laughs> uh, structures the book, because that's like the last chapter in the book. Yet he says that union with Christ is the most important doctrine. So I'm thinking, why didn't you put that first? Yeah, you should have put that first. And then, because in a sense, it is the most important doctrine. This is what he says on page 161, at least of my copy. He says, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. And he's right. There, that is the fount of which all of the blessings of Christ come to us. It is through our union. Now, you know, some people may focus on justification, which is very important. But all of that, the whole chain of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption, election, all those come because we are united to Christ by the Spirit through faith. Uh, Louis Burkhoff uh, wrote a systematic theology, uh, and he said, Every spiritual blessing which believers receive flows to them out of Christ. And if you think about how the Bible, the New Testament, particularly Paul, his favorite way of referring to Christians is not as believers, it's not as Christians, it's not as members of the way. His favorite way of referring to believers as, is as in Christ, in Jesus, in Him, in the Beloved. Think of how he talks about it in Ephesians chapter 1, 
where he says that phrase, either in him, in Christ, in the beloved, at least a dozen times. You know, we were chosen by God the Father in him before the foundation of the world. We received redemption in him. In, the spirit, in, in him we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. All of that refers to that union with Christ. We are united to Christ by faith. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage this morning as we look at chapter, uh, verses 17 through 21. We're going to see the theme of union with Christ come out, particularly in verse 20. How we are so identified and united to Christ that Paul here says, look, it's the life I live. It's not my life anymore. It's the life of Christ being lived through me or in me through faith. And just one more comment on union with Christ. That is the most basic identity of the Christian. Okay? You're not your nationality. You're not your gender. You're not your, uh, your, your citizenship. You're not your whatever, right? <laughs> you know, we, that's the thing. That's what we do in the world, right? We are seeking to find our identity in things that are not Christ, right? That's what, that's what we see in the culture today. So people identify themselves, well, I'm, I'm homosexual, or I'm a transgender, or I'm a this, or I'm a that. You know, and you're finding your identity in yourself, and that's a failing, that's a failing uh, uh, you know, endeavor. You're, because you're never going to be satisfied unless you find your identity in Christ. Right? This is what Augustine says when he says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. So our identity as Christians is not primarily our citizenship, our gender, our sexuality, our, our political party, or any of those things. Our identity primarily is as in Christ. And that's what we're going to see then as our theme as we look through this, that our union with Christ then turns our life into a walk of faith turns our life into a walk of faith. So first, let's look at verses 17 through 19 as dead to the law. And again, as we pick up here in verse 17, Paul is continuing his thought from verses 15 and 16, uh, summarizing his conversation with Peter. And here Paul mentions, he says um, in verse 17, but if in our endeavor, or while we seek to be justified by Christ, if in our endeavor to to be justified by Christ, we are found to be sinners, is then Christ a servant of sin? And he says, certainly not. So he's referring here to Peter himself and Peter's desire to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. If in our endeavor, if in our, in our seeking to be justified by, by Christ, we're found to be sinners. Think about what he says earlier in chapter, uh, in verse 15. Where he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The idea there, the Gentile sinner was one who was outside of the law. So if you did not have the law and if you did not obey the law from a Jewish mind, you were a sinner. And here he's like, look, if we are seeking to be justified by faith and we are found to be sinners, is that make Christ a servant to sin? In other words... Even though you may be justified by faith in Christ, even though you may be declared righteous by your faith in Christ, guess what? Christians still sin. Wish we didn't. <laughs> it would be wonderful if we didn't. But we still sin. We still struggle with the flesh. 
And, and, and what the Judaizers are saying is like, look, you who seek to be justified apart from the law, look, you are going to be, we're going to declare you to be sinners by associating with Gentiles. For, to the Jewish mind, again, that's, you, are, you are a sinner. They were outside the law. So the Judaizers, they want to add law. It's like, look, you need the law. We want, we want to add law to this faith thing so that you will not be considered sinners. But then Paul turns that endeavor on its head in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It's an interesting way to put it. On the contrary, adding works of the law back to faith makes you fall under that yoke of the law and then opens you up to being more of a sinner than you were before. You're like, well, what do you mean? Well, what does the law demand? Perfection. Right? If you're going to follow the law, 9 out of 10 isn't good enough. <laughs> right? You know, you know, you know I, I often use the baseball analogy, right? When, when I was a kid playing baseball, you know, my first game, I, I went 4 for 4. So my batting average was perfect. The next day, I went 3 for 3. My batting average was still perfect. My third day, oh, I made an out. Now, can I ever get back up to batting 1,000 ever again? No. I've got that one blemish on my account there. And now I'll never hit 1,000 ever, ever, ever again. I can go perfect the rest of the, my career as a baseball player. That one out is enough to keep me from perfection. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by half of the things, some of the things, no, no, all of the things written in the book of the law and do them. The law demands perfection. James says if you fail in one part of the law, you fail in all of it. It doesn't do you any good to go before the judge and say if you're there on trial for murder, and say, well, I haven't stolen anything. I've never stolen anything in my life. It's like, I've never committed adultery. It's like, yeah, but you committed murder. Yeah, but I, I've never, I've respected my mom and my dad. All my, yeah, but you've committed murder. And that's what you're on trial for. You are, you are not so much a murderer as you are a lawbreaker. You're, you're a lawbreaker. You've broken the law in one point. It means you've broken the law in all of its point. It demands perfection. And Paul's like, look, if you rebuild that edifice that was torn down because of our faith in Christ, then you are putting yourself under that yoke of the law. You're saying, I would rather take on the idea that I need to be perfect than to have faith in Christ. The law cannot save you. That option has been taken off the table ever since the fall. Right? I mean, the command, Adam could have fulfilled the commandment and been a law keeper and been translated into glory had he, had he succeeded. But he failed, and he made it impossible for anyone else ever again to be justified by works of the law. The law cannot save you. The law gives you no power to save you. All the law does is tells you what sin is. The law is a great mirror. <laughs> The law is a great mirror for sin. If you look at it, you're like, if I want to know what sin is, you look at the law, it tells you exactly what sin is. It can only show you your sin. I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 20, right? As he concludes that first 
major section in Romans about how everyone's been guilty of breaking the law. You know, in, in, chap, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, he has this sort of, you know, it's sort of like this law and order indictment of how we are sinful. And he, he quotes like a dozen or so uh, Old Testament passages to say how, to basically say the truth that no one is righteous. No, not one. Never. No. But I am, no, no, you're not either. No one is righteous. And then he says in verse 20, as he concludes, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It kind of leaves, that kind of closes the door on our ability to earn righteousness, right? By works of the law, how many people can be justified? None. No one. Why? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law just tells you that's sin, and it doesn't give you any strength to, to not fall into that trap. Right? Paul will say later in Romans 7, he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but I lack the power within me. <laughs> I have no power within myself to do what is right. So going back to works of the law is a death sentence. That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians 2, verse 18. If you're going to rebuild that edifice, then you're going to prove yourself to be a transgressor. So the only way to escape the law is to die to the law. That's what he says in verse 19. For through the law I die to the law so that I might live to God. Paul died to the law by seeing its demands. And he's died to the law by recognizing that the law only condemns. Um, Philippians 3 is a good example of how he died to the law. Right? right? He's, he's giving forth his resume. I was... I was born a Hebrew, you know, I was born in Israel, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I was circumcised on the, on the eighth day, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, it's like I've got my bona fides, I mean, my, my, my pedigree is rock solid, and then he goes on to my performance, it's like, look, I was a Pharisee, uh, you want to know how zealous I was, I, I persecuted the church, and then when he saw Christ, he said, all of a sudden, all of that was considered dung, right, all of that is rubbish, all of that is, I, I saw Christ, and I realized that the edifice I was building was taking me nowhere. It's like the guy uh, in the, the parable in Luke 14 where you know, he's saying, count the cost. It's like, if you're, if you're going to go to war, and you've got 10,000 soldiers, and you know that somebody's coming at you with 20, you better realize, you better think, you, you know, can I win this war? If not, I better make terms of peace. Well, Paul was thinking he could wage war in his own flesh, and he realized, I don't have the soldiers. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I cannot earn this on my own. I, why? Because I saw Christ. I saw Christ, I saw his perfection, and it, 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 undone, it, it made me undone. It tore me apart. I died to the law. The only way to live is to die to the law. We must be free of its demands, and we must be, uh, and that only happens through our union with Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that's what we're going to see here in the second point here, crucified with Christ in verse 20. How do we die to the law? We die to the law by being crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not by works of the law, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is an amazing statement. This is an amazing statement. 
we read through this and you know you might be like okay what does that mean exactly but it, it's it, it's it's an earth-shattering statement of truth here again it speaks of our union with christ and it speaks of it as a past complete in a, in a past completed sense not i will be crucified not i'm being crucified I have been crucified with Christ. It happened when it happened to Him. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified. Why? Because I am united to Christ by faith. Even before I was born, I was united to Christ by faith. All of us who were born far, far, far after the crucifixion of the Lord were there, if you are a believer, you are there on the crucifixion. You are there on the cross with Christ. I read a commentary that said four things were, were there on the cross of Christ when he was crucified. One was, of course, Jesus himself. Uh, that, that stands to reason. Uh, the second was the plaque above that read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, right? The, the so-called list of his crimes. Third was the, our sins, right? Colossians talks about how our, our sins are nailed to the cross. And the fourth thing is us. We were there too. We were crucified with Christ. Just look at a few passages with me, please. Chapter 5, verse 24 of Galatians. This is in the section of walking by the Spirit. Where he says here, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Or look again at chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So there Paul is talking about how in this union with Christ, I have in a sense died to the world. I have died to the world in trying to seek my pleasure in the world. I have died to the world in trying to seek my identity in the world. I have died to the world in trying to seek the approval of the world. I have died to the world in the seek of trying to earn any kind of righteousness through anything in the world. And the world has been crucified to me. Romans 6, please. Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. Actually, let's start with verse 3. This is in, a, in response to after talking about how we were saved by grace through faith and how where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, Paul then responds to what someone could reply. He said, well then, you know, should we just continue in sin so that grace may abound? If, if grace abounds over my sin, then the more I sin, right, the more grace will abound to cover it. So, you know, I like to sin, and God likes to shower grace, so this is like a win-win for both of us, right? And, and Paul's like, no, <laughs> no. Uh, we who are, why should we continue to sin? Sorry, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Then verse 3, do you not know that all of us who were who have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. We were united to Christ in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have died to sin so that we can be free from its grip, free from its power, free from its influence. So by virtue of our union with Christ, when he died on the cross, we died. When he was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. His righteousness is our righteousness. And Christ came to die for the elect, therefore we must be united with him for his atoning work to be effective. His atoning work is only effective to those who are united to him. And then notice how Paul personally applies this to himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. This is, this is personal. This is not Jesus has died for you. For Jesus, you know, like you get some generic, Jesus died for people. Okay, well, who are the people? Well, I don't know, whoever believes, right? No, Jesus died for you. You were crucified with Christ. You were, you were there. You were raised with him in newness of life. It's not a generic Jesus died for a group of people type of theology. He, this is very personal. And Paul applies it personally. Right? So now I, the life I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's true of anybody who is in Christ. If you are united to Christ, then you too have been crucified with him. God loves you and he gave himself for you. So then Christ's death uh, to or under the law in our place means that the righteous demands of the law have been fulfilled. Punishment has been carried out, right? That's, that's the whole idea of being united to Christ, which means that because we were there too, the punishment that fell upon him that was our punishment, he bore. And then we can now live in newness of life because of that. We are free from the law because that punishment has been meted out on Christ and has been applied to us through faith. Our union with Christ means that what's true for Jesus is also true for us. So our old life is, has been crucified. The old man, the, the man of sin. That's why Paul says, look, it is no longer I who live. That old person, the one I used to be on the road to Damascus, that guy is dead. In his place now is one who has been raised with Christ, one in whom Christ lives. Our old body of sin has died in place. The old man, uh, in place of the old man is Christ's life in us, as he says here. Look, right, I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. We looked at that in Colossians earlier, right? Our lives are hidden in Christ, but even in John chapter 14. Verses 19 and 20, he says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And of course, this is all through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit residing in us, the, the, the other helper that Jesus sends, 
is in a sense, you know, we see he's the Spirit of God, he's the Holy Spirit, he's also the Spirit of Christ. That is how Christ lives in us, right? This great passage in, in Colossians 1.27 in which Paul says, look, the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then because Christ lives in us, then the lives we live are lives of faith, right? So now the life I live, right? But I thought you were dead, Paul. No, 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 no. The old me is dead. The new me is now alive because Christ lives in me. And now the life I live in the flesh still. How do I live it? By works of the law? No, by faith, right? The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Is a life of faith. Saved by faith, live by faith, no works of the law added in there. And again, it's all because uh, the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. That's, that's the kind of love we're talking about. It's the kind of love that motivated Jesus to come into this world, right? Jesus, uh, the Father says, I will give you a bride, my son. And the Son says, I will go into the world and redeem my bride, Father. Thank you so much for this wonderful gift of this bride. I'm going to go into the world now, and I'm going to redeem her, and I'm going to cleanse her, and I'm going to make her my own. Out of love, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how do you do it? By giving himself for her, right? This cannot be overstated. This, this verse here, in this verse, verse 20, Paul is essentially destroying any and all attempts to add works of the law to the work of Christ. Considering, considering how much Jesus gave to redeem us, right? His very life, right? It wasn't just his death, right? It was the 30 years of, 30 to 33 years of life that he lived too, Right? I mean, if it was just to die on the cross, then he didn't need to come for all the rest. He could have just sort of, you know, Star Trek beamed down from, from you know, Enterprise on Passion Week, died on the cross, and then, you know, beam me up, Scotty, and I'm done. I did, I did the thing. I died on the cross part, right? No, he lived. It's like, well, why did he live 33 years? So you can have a righteous life, right? He lived a perfectly righteous life under the law so that we can have that righteous life by faith. And, and if you consider everything that Christ did for us, what can we possibly add to that? What's that? Okay, yeah, exactly. What can we possibly add to what Christ has done? It's like, I'd like to chip in a little bit, Jesus. You know, it's like you, know, it's like you go to a fancy restaurant and you've got this, you know, you're, you're treating an enormous number of people and, and the bill is like outrageous. And you're like, here, I've got a dollar. It's like, well, I ain't going to do anything. It's, it's like you need like a thousand dollars. Like your dollars not even really helping me. No, we cannot. There's nothing we could possibly add to the finished work of Christ, and this cannot be over. And, and beloved, this cannot be overstated at all, as we're going to see in a moment. Verse 21, justified by grace, where he says here, "I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." Or righteousness were through the law. Like, look, my life of faith does not nullify the grace of God. If anything, it establishes it. Um, 
And because of our union with Christ, Paul doesn't want to nullify or set aside the grace of God. And that's exactly what we do when you add works to it. When you add works of the law to the grace of God, you are, you are essentially setting aside the gospel. You are nullifying. You're making nothing uh, uh, of grace. This is the very thing the Judaizers were trying to do. They were, they were trying to add works of the law to the finished work of Christ. And by doing so, they were nullifying... They were setting aside the grace of God. It's like, it's like look, if righteousness were through works of the law, then, then, then Christ died for no purpose. And, and, and essentially what he's saying here, the importance of the statement is, like, look, if there was any other way for us to be righteous, then, then God sending his son to the cross then is, is not only child abuse, is unnecessary. If we could do it through the law, then why did Christ have to die? Right? If, we could, if we could, by works of the law of work or earn our way into salvation, then, then Christ dying on the cross is, is, is redundant. It's, it's unneeded. And what you really mean when you add works of the law to faith is you're basically saying, Christ, I don't need you to die for me. I can do this on my own. I can earn this. I got it. <laughs> right? No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. We have a works problem. That's why we have to, you know, when I say we cannot overstate this, it's because we have a works problem. Not just that we have, a, you know, our works aren't enough, but it's we want to add works to everything, right? You know, it's living in the Midwest, even the short amount of time that I have, it's like, you know, have you ever tried to buy dinner for somebody or supper for somebody? It's like it's usually a battle for the receipt. If you're if you're out on you know to supper with a couple, it's like who can get the receipt first? Because no one wants to be in debt to anybody else. It's like no no no, you're not going to buy dinner for me. I'm going to buy it for you. And then and then you're like no no no. It's like let me help. It's like no no no, I don't need your help. You know, we have a works problem. We want to work or earn our salvation, but Paul says we can't. It's only through faith. If you got a hymnal in front of you. I want to look at some questions from the Heidelberg. I want to look at primarily question 60, but the others are good too. If I can just find the page it's on. It is on page 867 in the back of the hymnal. So Heidelberg Catechism... um, Lord's Day 23, question 60 on page 867. Uh, this is a great question. How are you righteous before God? That, that's, the, that's the question, right? That's the question. How can I be righteous before a holy God? What do I got to do? It's like what the young man says to Jesus. What do I need to do in order to earn eternal life? Well, you can't do anything, right? The catechism answers like, you're only righteous by God uh, through true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me, which it does all the time, that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments, not some, all the commandments of God, and have never, ever, ever kept any of them, and am still prone always to all evil, so I haven't done anything good, I continue to not do anything good, and I will always not do anything good. Double negative, but you get what I mean. Uh, yet God... Without any merit of mine, 
I mean, the, the catechism can't be any more clear. It's really trying to say, you can't do this. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sins, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. The righteousness of Christ is given to you freely by God of grace, no merit of yours, if only you receive it with the empty hand of faith. And like I said, I could go on. You can look at question 61. Why do you say that you're righteous by faith only? Well, it's not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness. So it's not the strength of your faith, right? It's not, oh, I've got a really strong faith, but only because of the satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ which is my righteousness before God. And I can receive the same and make it my own in no other way than by faith only. So, it's, it, so when he says it's only by faith, it's not the strength of your faith either. Right? Uh, it's, you know, it's not like you've got to believe and you've really got to believe and you've got to have more faith. No, no, no. A weak faith, right? A mustard seed-sized faith, as Jesus says, in Christ is sufficient to save you. Teeny tiny little weak faith. You have little faith. As long as your little teeny tiny weak faith is rests on the sure foundation of Christ and his righteousness, you are saved. Converse is if you can have a strong faith in your own works. That's like putting something really heavy on a teeny tiny little thing, trying to balance it, and it's going to fall apart. Problem is we don't see faith as enough. Right? That's... That's the problem here with the Judaizers. Well, faith can't be enough. This is foolishness, right? Just faith? Yeah, it's the foolishness of the gospel. But then with good intentions, we, we add layers, right? You know, just like Shrek says, or the donkey says in Shrek, right? Ogres have layers and onions have layers. <laughs> Parfaits have layers, too. If you've seen Shrek, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen Shrek, don't worry about it. We want to add layers to the gospel. We want to add layers to the gospel. Faith is not enough. You've got to say, well, you have to repent first, or you have to deny yourself, or you have to forsake all of your sin first. Then you've got to follow Jesus. I mentioned this earlier. Look at Mark chapter 10. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. I'm almost done. Kind of. <laughs> Mark chapter 10. starting in verse 17. The rich young man. Mark 10, verse 17 and following. So as he was setting out on his journey toward Jerusalem, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do? I mentioned this earlier, right? What do I have to do? to inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus could have very well said, you can't do anything. You have to believe in me in order to have eternal life. But he doesn't say that. It's like, okay, you want to know what you got to do? Okay, well, here's what you got to do. Um, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Yeah, right. Uh, verse 21, 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now we look at that, and we read that, and we say, All right, well, okay, well, first of all, we don't want to say salvation by giving up everything you own, okay? But then we, but then we say, but you've got to be willing to give up everything you own, right? As long as you're willing to give up everything. doesn't say that. doesn't say uh, you lack one thing. It's, as long as you are willing to sell everything you have and give to the poor, you will have treasure. No. The guy asked him, what do I have to do? Jesus says, this is what you have to do. You've got to do the law. And when he says, I've done the law, Jesus, in a sense, this question comes back to him. and says, you haven't really done the law. You need to do this in order to do the law. And the guy walks away. And then his disciples are like, uh, who can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 27, and the reason they say that is because in their Jewish mind, right, great wealth was a symbol of blessing. Right? If, you were, if you were wealthy, you were blessed by God. And they're like, if that guy can't go to heaven, then who can? And he says, well, with man, this is impossible. That's the gospel. It's impossible. With God, all things are possible. We want to add works. You can't add works. As we mentioned last time, all of these things, repentance, denial of sin, self-denial, following Jesus, Willingness to sell everything, all of those. That's fruit of the gospel. That is the fruit of a life that has been saved. That is the result or the response to the gospel. They are not the gospel. And if you, if you in, in our attempt to sort of try to root out kind of false and superficial conversions, we tend to slip to the other extreme and we start to mix law and gospel together. And as we said last time, you get gospel. <laughs> you get gospel. That doesn't save, right? It's not gospel, it's gospel. Works of the law have no place in the gospel. Our union with Christ means that we have died to the law through our crucifixion with Christ, and now our lives are lived by faith, by faith. Uh, So just to bring this to a close, because we're running out of time. This, as I said, concludes Paul's defense of his ministry and message and has set the stage now for the rest of the book of Galatians, uh, moving on in chapter 3 and forward. Uh, but for us, we need to see the Christian life as a life of faith. As, as Paul will say in other places, you are saved by, from faith to faith, right? It's, it's, you know, Habakkuk says, the, the righteous shall live by faith. It is a life from faith to faith to faith. Saved by faith, sanctified by faith, and our obedience then flows out of that union with Christ. And again, here we see the contrast between the true gospel of faith alone, which saves, and the false gospel of adding works or confusing law and gospel in all of its forms. One saves, the other, beloved, is deadly. Well, next time we're going to look at, and next time will be next week, next time we're going to look at the first five verses of Galatians 3.